the glass holder's larger than the glass. So you just have to be very careful you don't put it in there. I don't know if any other preacher has fallen victim to that. But uh, it's a good little test just to check your, get your wits about you before you start to deliver God's Word. It's nice to be back here. It was the first Sunday of Advent. I was last here. And uh, it was a good day. I always like Christmas time. And uh, January is a bit of a downer after Christmas and New Year, if you confess. Um, that's why I've got uh, cold sores and hacked lips. And it's normally a sign of the cold winter weather and lack of sleep and being a little bit run down. But the good news is that spring is on its way and the nights are getting shorter, the days are getting longer. And it does feel an awfully long month, January often. It's quite a dark month and it does feel quite long. And uh, one thing that I always find lifts my spirits is reading the Psalms. I, I try and read a Psalm each day, maybe, maybe one or two Psalms. And uh, some of you may know my favorite Psalm. And some of you, uh, it's nice to see uh, some familiar faces here from the church and from outside, uh, Airdrie Baptist. Some of you maybe would be familiar with some sentiments that I might share and the importance in my life of a particular psalm, Psalm 103. And uh, I may, I hope I don't repeat any old ground uh, for those of you that know me. I I hope not. I don't think I will. But some of you may know this is my favorite psalm. And you may also know that this psalm, I don't know if you knew this by the way, but this psalm was written just for me, specifically by the, the pen of David under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, just for Peter McLean. And that was the, 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 the ultimate primary purpose that the Lord had when David was writing that, so that many, many thousands of years later, Peter could read this psalm and his life would be changed. I don't know if any of you feel the same way about a particular psalm. You're quite right to. You're absolutely right to. The Lord has many purposes for his word, but he has purposes for us and his word. And that's why I wanted to to spend some time in this psalm this morning. In in the past, when I've been at churches and shared a little bit about my background, I've very much included this psalm as part of what the brethren would say is your testimony when you talk about what the Lord has done in your life over many, many years. I don't intend to go there this morning. But I would like to preach a sermon on the psalm, so to speak. And when I say that, I just want to bring out a few of the wonderful things that this psalm tells us. They tell, it it tells me over and over again. And there are similar psalms which will tell us similar messages. There are other psalms which will tell us different messages. But Psalm 103 is a good psalm for me. It's significantly, it's a psalm which to my complete um, uh, shame, I, I totally forgot about this. But when I was baptized in East Bride at the age of just before my 14th birthday, one of the elders in the church mentioned this psalm. He didn't read it for sake of time. It was a, it was a busy, busy morning. He didn't read the psalm, but before I went down to be baptized, he, he gave a short introduction and he said, Peter, Remember this psalm in your Christian life and ministry. And I was 13 at the time, and I completely forgot this. Needless to say, I forgot many other things in my young adult life. 
But I came back to church at the age of 25, and I came back to a, a renewed faith in Christ by sitting on my, my bedside on a Sunday afternoon, looking out my window, and opening the Bible randomly, desperate for God to speak to me. And this was where the Bible opened, at Psalm 103. And it wasn't until many, many years later I actually got a CD from my baptismal service where on the recording was Alan McLean saying, Peter, remember in your Christian life Psalm 103. So I found it somewhat miraculous. I was not surprised in the slightest, but I found it miraculous in God's providence that it would be mentioned at my baptism and I would um, spend many years of my life not listening to God's Word, but then at the very point I was ready to give, come back to God in my life, this was the psalm that was instrumental in my, my turning. And I just find that miraculous. And that's why I can say quite safely this psalm was written just for me. And no doubt you'll have other um, similar stories perhaps for your own psalm. But I want to read the psalm and then just make a few comments about some of the important things. We mentioned it to the kids, but there are just two or three important themes and messages from this psalm which, which I want us to remember. It's it probably, most of all, the main message that comes from this is that God is the God of the second chance, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and if you're into maths, and the nth. God is, this, God is always available. Um, if we run out of chances, it's because it's our fault. It's because we turn our back on God. It's because we say no to Him. We close the door. God's door is always open. So what I get from this psalm is God is the God of the multiple chances. And I find that wonderful. The, the psalms are, are testament to the, that, and many, many of the other psalms are as well. And Psalm 103 is a particularly important one. David wrote about 73 psalms that were either written by him or for him. You'll see they say of David. And 14 of them are related to events in his life. And it's thought that Psalm 103 is very closely linked with Psalm 51, the incident with, the incident with Bathsheba, where David was guilty of, I think, breaking about six of the Ten Commandments. Um, he was guilty of lies, adultery, murder, covetousness, and, and perhaps one or two others, but he was guilty of some biggies. And it's, it's, it's thought that 103 was written around the same time as 51. And if you know the story in, in Samuel about David's experiences, then you, it would make sense. The sentiments in 103 are similar to 51. And you maybe have an incidents in your life where you need to know God's forgiveness. You need to know that God still loves you because the devil's telling you God doesn't. And I've certainly had times like that in my life. And, and this is a psalm for, for, for you. This is a psalm for that kind of scenario. And uh, let me just take some time to read it. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that what we know not, you will teach us. What we have not, you will give us. And what we are not, you will make us. For your Son's sake and glory. Amen. So, Psalm 103. Let's just look at it. And, and I want to highlight three, maybe four points. Really, there, there are probably three things that Psalm 103 tell us about God, which I want to just uh, speak about this morning. Psalm 103 tells us, firstly, what God does, what He does in the present, what He is, has always done and what He still does today, what God does. Secondly, the psalm tells us what God has done, and we'll take time just to look back and, and look at what God has done. And thirdly, and I find this quite encouraging as well, there's just a little section where the, psalm tells, the psalmist tells us, thirdly, what God doesn't do. And I, for one, am glad about that. But I'm glad about all three. What God does, what God has done, and what God doesn't do. And as we look at that, I want to highlight three characteristics of God. And they are the most prominent in David's mind at this time in his life and as he pens this psalm. Firstly, forgiveness. Secondly, compassion. And thirdly, love. These are three of the most attractive of God's attributes. There are other attributes of God we don't like. Sometimes we don't like His holiness or His wrath or His justice and punishment. Like when a naughty child does not like the fact that his father either spanks him or grounds him, but it's for his own good. There are aspects of God's character we don't like. We sometimes write them out of our lives and we ignore them, but they're there nonetheless. But that's another sermon, perhaps. But it's, it goes without saying that these three characteristics of God are, are to us, as sinful human beings, certainly the most attractive, and thank God for them, for His forgiveness, for His compassion, 
and for his love. And I want to emphasize these this morning. The psalm has probably got a, you could probably split the psalm into three parts. David, in the first five verses, starts, he addresses himself to arouse himself to a proper worship of God. Have you ever got to do that? Have you ever got to pull yourself up by your own breeks, as they say? Come on, Peter, get a grip of yourself. Come on, Peter, make sure you, you know, make sure you spend some time with the Lord this morning before you rush out to that. Make sure that you remember God's goodness when you've had a difficult week. No doubt you there are many times you have to arouse yourself to open up to God, to ask God, God, speak to me. God, help me. When the prodigal son was in the pigsty, he had to come to his senses. Before he could go back to his father and to God, he had to come to his own senses. And there are times like that in our lives, in our devotion, we have to kind of talk to ourselves. Before we worship God correctly, we need to sort of give ourselves a good talking to, a good G up. And that's what David does in the first five verses. He says, come on, David, get your act together, son. Let's worship God properly. And then from that, he goes on to the second section from 6 to 18. He opens up his thoughts from himself to God's covenant people, the whole people of God, which is us here this morning. And he recalls God's mercy to all of God's people. So he widens things out, firstly himself, secondly God's people, and thirdly and lastly, in the last four verses, 19 to 22, he talks to creation. So he's going really big here. He's starting with his poor little self. Come on, David. But by the end of the psalm, verses 19 to 22, he is summoning all of creation to join in praise to God. Not bad for 22 verses. So that's what he does. You can see how he's starting small and he's going big. And when he does this, he, at the very, very start of it, he says, just look at the first couple of verses. He tells us what we are to do. He's talking to himself, but let's put ourselves in David's position. Let's talk to ourselves this morning. I'll talk to myself. You talk to yourself. He tells us what we are to do. And there's a little reminder later on as to why we are to do this. Verses 14 to 16. Here he tells us about the human condition, the frailty of human life. We are, God knows how we are formed. We are dust. Our days are like grass. We flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over us and we are gone. And our place remembers us no more. Ashes and dust. That's all we are. Read Ecclesiastes. We are ashes and dust, folks, at the end of the day. So given that, what are we to do in this life? Verses 1 and 2. We are to praise God. Six times, David says, we're to praise God. He says it maybe three times at the start and three times at the end. Or maybe two at the start, four at the end. Six times he says, praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. God, whatever's going on in your life, folks, we are here to praise Him. First uh, article of the Westminster, uh, Westminster Confession, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. goes for women as well, of course. Mankind is what it means. We are to praise God. 
And we're to do it, David says, from our soul, from our inmost being. We are to not forget God's benefits. The answer I can give to this sometimes is yes. Do you ever forget God's benefits? Are you ever a little bit, oh, woe is me. Life's really bad. And sometimes life is bad. But I have known, pastored, or known people who for life, it's really bad. But they could teach me a lot about the spiritual side of things. They are more content. Uh, Jason read some verses from Paul about rejoicing in circumstances. There are people who can praise God and can remember God's benefits and are more joyful in the deepest, darkest of circumstances than sometimes perhaps I or maybe some of us can be in our good times. That's what David wants us to be like. David was in a pretty tough spot. Imagine the shame of this. The courtroom scandal. This was no secret. Murder, uh, adultery, you know, this was no secret. This was a scandal. So David was in a pretty bad spot, but he could say all of this regardless. And I just want to ask you this morning, can you, whatever your circumstances are, I don't know your circumstances, but God does. Whatever your circumstances are, folks, do not forget God's benefits. It's so easy to forget his benefits. It's so easy for a child when he gets 10 presents to think about the present he didn't get at Christmas time. It's human nature. And we are just big kids. We are the same. Often we're the same spiritually. Let's get where David was. Because David, even although things were tough, he could say, actually, I'm not, I've not forgotten your benefits, even in the dark times. So he wants us to praise God. He wants us to praise the Lord. What are we to do in this life? We are to praise. Who is the object of our praise? Well, it is the Lord alone. And if you have a look at verses 8 and verses 11, we see that there's a link between who God is and what he does. God's name or God's nature and God's character. We can worship God as God because of what he is like. If God was not God, if God was not what he was, we should not worship him. If God was a nasty, manipulative, sick, punishing, heartless God who was capricious and dealt out fury at a whim on human nature, then we need not worship him. Richard Dawkins or whoever. But that is not the God that exists in heaven. That is not the God that has revealed himself in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor is it the God that revealed himself when he spoke to Moses on Sinai. We don't have time to turn to it, but go back to Exodus 3 this afternoon. The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. Where did David get his um, verse, um, verse 8 from? It's from the way that God revealed himself to Moses and Sinai. God is compassionate and gracious. If you go and read the end of Exodus, Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, you will see how many times God says to Moses, I am compassion. That is my very nature. I am a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. There are echoes in verse 11. There are echoes right through this psalm of God's appearance and conversation with Moses. Because God is who he says he is. God acts as he says he will act. He acts because of who, what he is like in his very heart. 
And you can see that when you look at Jesus Christ. There is a direct link between God's name to Moses and how he acts throughout the Old Testament. And into the New Testament, there is the same direct link between Jesus' name and what he has done for us, how Jesus acts. Jesus is Yeshua. It means he saves. The name given to Joseph in the dream, the name given to uh, Mary by the angel Gabriel, and if you watch the, the film The Nativity, it's the very giving of the name which makes Joseph and, re- and Mary realize this is of God, and Joseph decides not to stone her, which I think is correct, because the, this is revealed separately to Mary and Joseph, but it's the very name of Jesus. You shall give him the name Jesus, Matthew 1.21. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The, Gabriel says the same thing to Mary. Jesus' name is completely matched up with what he is here to do, a savior. So who he is and what he does are the same. It's consistent. And this is the God that David says we are to worship. And that's why we can worship God with confidence this morning, whatever our circumstances are. Not because of what our life is like, not because of where we're at, but because of who God is and what he has done. God, right through the psalm, David gives us reasons why we are to worship this God. He forgives, uh, he heals, he redeems, he crowns us, he satisfies us, he works for us, he has compassion on us, and his love is with us. That's just a few. This is what God does. So let's, let's just look briefly at how God does this. Let's look at forgiveness, compassion, and love. This is what God does. God forgives. David mentions God's forgiveness in verses 3 and 9 and 12. And this is one of the the fundamental characteristics of who God is and how He acts. He forgives. Like a loving parent forgives their child. What does it say? Uh, Verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children. This is the verse that broke me into tears as I sat reading it on my own one July Sunday afternoon when my girlfriend had left with my one-year-old son. And when my love for my one-year-old son hit me, I realized God loves me the same way I love my boy. He forgives. And that is one of the most wondrous things about God. People think God, if you have the idea that God rewards you on merit, or you need to reach a standard in order to get in, or you need to, you're part of a select group of uh, redeemed people based on what you do, or that is not the God that exists in heaven. It's not the God that we worship. We worship a God that forgives. And I hope you're glad about that this morning. And he forgives because, secondly, he's a God of compassion. Go back and read Exodus 33, 34 this afternoon, but David mentions it a number of times. He references this compassionate God in verses 4 and 8, and again in 13. The Hebrew word is rahamim. Rahamim is compassion, mercy, sympathy, tenderness, pity, or sensitive love. Wonderful, wonderful words. And the word comes from the the verb raham, which means to have compassion. And this is specifically used in the Bible from God to men, from a superior to an inferior, from somebody who can help 
to somebody who cannot help themselves. That's why we must realize that we need God's help before He can help us. If you think you can help yourself, then you're stuffed. And there are religions which will teach that. But that's not what the Bible teaches. We are accepting God's compassion. It, it, it's, it's the deep love from a parent towards a child. That's what the Hebrew word raham indicates. And it, 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 it's one of the recurring wonderful words in the Old Testament. So we see God's forgiveness, we see God's compassion, and thirdly, we see God's love. And all of these attributes, you'll notice that we're still considering what God does. David, when he mentions these, is speaking in the present tense. So God, even today, for you, whatever you're dealing with, God forgives, God is compassionate, and thirdly, God loves, and God's love goes right through the psalm. Perhaps for this afternoon as well, you might consider Jesus, in fact, let's just read it. Jesus, in, in John 15, talks a little bit about love in the Last Supper, and it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. When he talks about what love is, he says to his disciples in chapter 15, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And if you're a chaplain in the armed forces, you'll speak that verse to the soldiers quite a lot. But if you want to go into God's love further, then have a read of 1 John this afternoon, perhaps chapters 3 and 4. John tells us about what love is, and it's well worth another read. But God's love is the third great theme in this psalm. The Hebrew word is hesed. And this is one of the most important words in the Old Testament, hesed and emet, God's loving kindness, God's gracious love for His people. Hesed is one of the central themes of the Old Testament. It's God's primary characteristic and it's all about God's love for His people. And there are ways to describe it, which I've pinched from other people because they can express it far better than I can. But the word hesed means a whole number of things. And I'll just mention them before we conclude. Hesed, as it describes God love, God's love, means God's steadfast love, God's loving kindness, God's mercy, unfailing love, love that reaches to the heavens, love that endures forever, love that conquers judgment, wondrous love that saves. These are all verses and songs, I think, somewhere. Love that surpasses knowledge, love that possesses all the fullness of God Himself. Although we may be unfaithful to our relationship with God, God's hesed love for us is everlasting. That's what hesed means, and you can see it means an awful lot. Our language cannot define and contain in limited terms what God's hesed love is for us. As we would sing when I was at Sunday school, Jesus' love is very wonderful. Oh, wonderful love. So high you can't go over it. So low you can't get under it. And then there was also wide, wide as the ocean. High as the heavens above. Deep, deep as the deepest sea is my Savior's love. I, though so unworthy, still am a child of His care. For His Word teaches me that His love reaches me everywhere. 
Now, the kids' songs can put it brilliantly. They can describe God's love in a way which just thrills our hearts. So, that's what God does. We see how God is, forgives, He is compassionate, and God loves. Let's just briefly look back at what God has done, secondly, what He's done in the past. David does refer to this in verses 7, 12, and 9. David looks, pat, looks back to past history. But do you know what? He's, he looks back to Moses in verse 7, and you remember the Exodus story. The Old Testament people of God look back to, to the redeeming act of the Exodus. But at the same time, they were looking forward to the coming Messiah. 2,000 years later, we look back to the Exodus, but also to the first coming of the Messiah, and we look forward to the second coming of the Messiah. So David is looking back from his perspective in history about what God has already done. But David also is also looking back into eternity itself. God's plan of salvation was planned in eternity before time began. Ephesians 1. God's salvation after the fall was His plan from the beginning of time, before time, Jesus coming as a person, as a man to die on the cross. That was planned in heaven before Adam was even created. Don't get the idea that the whole Bible is a story of plan B because God was caught out because Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit. That's not what the Bible teaches. This plan of salvation, this plan of God's love for a people was in eternity. And David looks back beyond time to that actual time in eternity. He says in verse 11, no, he doesn't. He says in verse, um, is it verse 10 or verse 12? He, he looks back and he says that God has removed their iniquities. God has, yeah, verse 12, he has removed our transgressions from us. How can David say that when Jesus had not yet died on the cross? It was another thousand years till Jesus came to atone for our sins. But David can say, God has removed our transgressions. The only thing that removes our transgressions is the death of Christ. How can David say that? Because he's looking back in the Spirit to a time in eternity where Jesus' saving work on the cross was already a completed act. And if you read your Old Testament prophets, they often talk about something that was so certain to happen in human future they could speak about it in the past tense. It's called the prophetic perfect. God has. Now, in history, it maybe hadn't happened, but they were so sure of, it, sure of it because of the God they knew and the God they worshipped, they could speak about it as if it had already happened. And that is a great encouragement. And that's why David can look back and say, he has removed our transgressions from us. In 17... He goes on to talk about the future blessings of God throughout history. But how is all this possible, lastly? Well, we've looked at what God does. We've looked at what He has done in the past. We cannot look back at what God has done without looking finally, and particularly at Jesus Christ. Psalm 103 isn't particularly a messianic psalm, but it, you could say it's got some messianic um, pointers in it. And that's one for you to consider, perhaps, in your study this week. If you read the whole psalm with Jesus' goggles on, and you think, what does this verse say about Jesus? You'll probably find it says an awful lot, as does the rest of the Old Testament, by the way. But 
None of this we can consider without looking back at what Jesus has done. David is looking forward to what Jesus will do. And he talks about blessings which we only receive because of Jesus' death on the cross. Verse 3, our our sins are forgiven, our diseases are healed. Verse 4, our lives are redeemed from the pit, we are crowned with love and compassion. Verse 12, we are not treated as our sins deserve or repaid according to our iniquities. Verses 17 and 18, God's love is with us from everlasting to everlasting. His righteousness is with our children. How is all of this possible? Because Christ died. So we can look back the same way David was looking back and looking forward. And we can look back at what God has done and say, thank you, God, for what Jesus has done. But I can also be glad, thirdly and lastly, at what God doesn't do. Verses 9 and 10. God does not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. I am glad that God does not do that. Because if he did, none of us could stand. But I'm just as glad about what God doesn't do as I am about what God has done and what God does do. And having said all that, there's a sting in the tail like Jesus' parables, which have always got a little twist at the end, a little challenge. Amidst all this wondrous truth and this great encouraging message which we need in our souls every single day, there's a little kind of, but so what at the end? So what now? And in verse 18, David says this, After the promise of God's everlasting love and righteousness with my grandchildren, David then says this, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Just because the kids have got loving parents does not mean to say they can continue in bad behavior because they know their parents will always love them. Similarly, for us, God's children... Because of all we know about God, how he has acted, his love, his forgiveness, his compassion in our lives, that does not negate us from keeping God's covenant and following his commandments. Jesus says many times, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And John says in his first letter, if you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. This is our side of the bargain. We've read much about God's side of the covenant But our side, folks, we must keep the covenant. We don't establish the covenant. We can't renew the covenant like Christ did. But we keep our side of it. The Baptists have always been very strong on the the covenantal side, the, the, the visible church's commitment to God, the horizontal relationship with each other, and our the conditional aspect of God's covenant people. Um, and that makes the Baptists often different from the reformers who emphasize the vertical side, God's part in things. But the Baptists in history have always been strong on the, well, what does it mean for us? And I say it first to myself, folks, as we go away this morning with this wondrous encouragement, let us just, with the Spirit's help this week, help us just to live, verse 18, to keep in step with God's covenant, to remember, to obey His precepts. And then we will all be good, well-behaved children 
of God. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the eternal message. We thank you for the inspiration, Holy Spirit, that you gave to mortal sinful men who penned it for us. And we thank you that many, many centuries later, that message can feel like it's just for us. And we ask that you will take this message today and just lift us up and just help us in our lives this week. Help us with the areas we struggle and just check us in the areas we need uh, rebuke and just keep us moving forward and help us to live in the light of your love, your forgiveness, and your compassion. Help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.